0: Wherever Mohammed El-Aryan goes, he's been a leader. And he's been in any number of high-profile places. He commanded trillions in investment at the helm of PIMCO, where he doubled assets over his tenure. At the same time, he led a team of advisors that instructed President Obama on global development. Before that, he took charge of billions in Harvard University's endowment and worked as deputy director at the International Monetary Fund. He's here to offer insight on the market, the Fed, the global economy, and how it's all intertwined. Welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and joining me now, Mohammed el arian Mohamed, welcome. Thank you for having me, Andy. So you are a global strategist, global macro strategist looking at the world, looking at economic trends. And you were just telling me, Mohammed, that you
1: think this environment is very invigorating? Oh, absolutely. It's very exciting. There are so many pieces moving and moving in an unusual fashion that you're getting unthinkables becoming reality. And the more unthinkables you get, the more it takes people out of their comfort zone. So it's, it's fascinating to be able to, to figure out what is going on and what should you focus on and what shouldn't you focus on.
0: And you were saying that the further away people are from the United States, the more uncertainty there is
1: in the world. Why is that? Yes, I mean, we, we I think, underestimate our central role in the global economy. So when you go to Asia, when you go to the Middle East, when you go to various parts of the world, They think of the U.S. as anchoring the global economy. It is in the middle of the global economy. It is the core. It's meant to be predictable. It's meant to be reliable. And they can't explain what's going on in the U.S. They see all these strange things happening and therefore they become more nervous and they try to understand what's going on. And there's a sense of we don't quite understand the system anymore because the core isn't as predictable as it used to be.
0: And I want to ask you about growing up because you grew up in New York, in Egypt, in England. And how did that prepare you for the current job that you have? So I was born,
1: born in New York. We moved around a lot. Um, and at one point I told my dad and my mom, I can't do this anymore. Um, we were living in Paris at the time. I was in school in Paris. And I said, I can't do this anymore. Um, I need stability. So they said, what do you wanna do? I said, I wanna go to boarding school. And they said, where do you wanna go? I said, the States. They said, too far, too expensive. What's your second choice? And without knowing what I was saying, I said, England. And I remember my dad said, you wanna go to boarding school in England? I said, yes. He said, do you know what that means? (laughs) I said, yes. I should have figured out he was warning me. So I ended up going, going to boarding school in England. And then that provided me stability until I came back to Washington after I graduated.
0: Did you ever think you're going to become a global market strategist? I mean, does one think about that when they're a kid or even
1: in high school or college? So I knew I wanted to be an economist. I've always found economics fascinating. I absolutely love it. So I knew, I thought I was going to be an academic, but then my father passed away suddenly and my mother had never worked. And I had a seven-year-old sister. So it became, the issue became who pays economists, who pays PhD economists. And at the time, this is a long time ago, Andy, There were only two institutions that really paid PC economists anything meaningful, which at the time was $30,000 a year. It was the IMF and the World Bank. So I ended up at the IMF in Washington and that ended up being a great choice. So that was before Wall Street really hired economists, I guess is what you're saying, right? Correct, correct. I mean, Wall Street didn't have much regard for economists. I didn't see the need. And the demand for economists was really from the multilateral institutions
0: so you worked at the imf and stayed there until there was some demand from wall street
1: was that kind of how things happened so i stayed there for 15 years having the time of my life and then i was turning 40. i had never tried the private sector and the imf had this wonderful program where they encouraged people to go away for a couple of years your re-entry was guaranteed so it was basically a free option so i moved from washington to what was solomon brothers and became Solomon Smith Barney in London. And then after about eight months, I got this phone call from a headhunter telling me about this West Coast firm um, called Pimco. And I interviewed with them, fell in love with them and never looked back after that.
0: So was there the idea, Mohammed, that um, an economist would say that, say that Deutsche Mark is going to do this against the dollar and if the firm puts all this money on this trade, they'll make money. And if they did, would they come back to you and say, that was that was genius. Thank you for helping us make money. Was that
1: how it sort of worked? So at the time, the traders who were significantly younger than me at Solomon, significantly younger, um, would have two modes. One mode where markets were trading for fundamental on fundamentals, and they really wanted to hear from the economists and the strategists. Another mode when markets were trading on technicals and they would literally push you away. Say whatever you tell me is going to confuse me because markets aren't listening to fundamentals. And the great traders are the ones who understood the pivot. So there were times when they were consuming your content and there were other times when they rightly thought you're completely irrelevant to what's going on over the next day or two days or three days
0: was there a time though when they were very grateful in terms of you steering them towards the right kind of trade i guess sure
1: i mean they 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 understood that ultimately fundamentals assert themselves and the reason why Pimco was so great because it basically is anchored by a long-term view the secular horizon and that is when fundamentals assert themselves so what technicals give you are entry entry points um but it's not the the thesis. The thesis is a fundamental base thesis and PIMCO's success has been to understand what the big secular themes are and to position for them.
0: Right, and you can make money that way over the long term in fixed income at that, you know, that was the the focus of the firm to a great degree. Yeah,
1: and virtually any asset class as long as you can ride out the short-term fluctuations. So there are times at which um, the long-term thesis isn't working out and it's very important in addition to having portfolio managers who have conviction and foundation, both. Conviction is not enough without foundation. To have customer relations people, client-facing people who explain over and over to your investors that this is going to play out. Now, PIMCO had developed a track record that investors had a three-year horizon in terms of their patience with the thesis working out.
0: you left PIMCO to go to Harvard to run the endowment there. And that must've been interesting to say the very least. Today, that endowment is what, $37 billion. And I guess one question, maybe you have some thoughts on this is, should Harvard and universities like that be free? I mean, these endowments are, are so vast, right?
1: So, so it's important to understand what these endowments do. They fund somewhere between 30 to 40% of the university's annual, budget so that is a huge benefit and in fact i now co-chair in england the the cambridge university capital campaign because they've understood that they need some source of funding that's independent of governments and 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 independent of project financing so what an endowment gives you is the ability to fund part of your budget on a more predictable basis Um, The second thing that the endowment gives you is that very often, and people don't realize that, the funds are restricted. So it's not as if you can do anything, So they are directed, so you can develop long-term programs. I think most universities would love to have bigger endowments, but it is an issue in terms of not whether you should have them, but how you get treated when you have them. Right, I
0: mean, there are students who are going to these universities, maybe not Harvard, but other places where there is an endowment and they still feel like they're, you know, being pressured to come up with the funding, right? Right. The
1: reason why Harvard can basically give a cost-free ride to people under a certain level, uh, and that level's quite high in terms of family income, is because uh, of, of that endowment. And that's critical if you're gonna try to level the playing field to give everybody equal opportunity. Right. They've had some
0: problems with turnover, with people running that place. What, what is that all about? You, you
1: think? know, it's never easy to have an investment management operation in some other body so let's go away from the endowments very few insurance companies Allianz being the exception with PIMCO have allowed investment management companies to flourish under their umbrella and give them autonomy because like any other industry the bigger mass tends to start wanting to either interfere or influence. So endowments typically have this issue where on the one one hand, they're supposed to be commercially oriented, but they live in an academic environment. So you get continuous conflicts. It can be on things as simple as where you invest. It can be on compensation. It can be on what you do with the funding. So it's really important to figure out what is the right governance and then stick to it. You went back to PIMCO and you worked for a
0: number of years with Bill Gross. Bill Gross recently retired from another firm. Um, you guys knocked heads sometimes, I gather. What, what were some of the pluses and minuses of working with him? What
1: were some of the, his strengths and weaknesses? So his strength is his ability to focus on the long term, um, incredible discipline, his ability to embrace innovations, um, he's very open-minded on that, and his ability to evolve the structure. He used to have a phrase which I, which I have found very powerful: "Let structure do the heavy lifting." So I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Um, somewhere, Tom, in the '90s, he realized that markets were getting more and more sophisticated. So the old model was you want to be a specialist, and then he realized that the right model is what he called the hub and spoke: is you put the generalists in the middle and then you put the specialists all around the journalist and you create a two-way interaction between them so that the generalist benefits from very in-depth expertise of the specialist but the specialists benefit from understanding the overall environment in which you operate. This notion is no matter how good your house is the neighborhood matters. That was a brilliant change in the way you run an investment management firm. He was right at the front of, of that change. So so he had that vision, and was able to adapt um, by the marketplace.
0: But you didn't always get
1: along. I think, you know, fundamentally, I have nothing but respect for Bill. And I wish him well. I think his impact on our industry has been really important and will outlive. I'm still amazed that if you go around the world, Things that he came up with are now being applied um, every day. Right. I mean, he was the bond king, right? He was, and he had a he, and he had a massive kingdom, two billion dollars. Right. That was two trillion dollars. I can't two even two trillion. Say it. Right. Two trillion dollars. Two billion. That's sell- yeah. selling a short. Two trillion dollars. Right. Which which he started from nothing at all, and his initial idea was, you know what, bond investing shouldn't be about going down to the vault, and tearing the coupon and sending it in. Right? Let's use these assets more productively. A little bit like Uber figured out, let's use the cars more productively, like Airbnb figured out. But you're talking about the early 70s. Right. Um, let's go back to the, to the
0: markets. Um, what is your outlook then for the U.S. economy
1: and the U.S. market? So the U.S. economy on a standalone basis is very easy to explain and to predict. Growth will continue. The two most important sectors in the economies are fine. The household sector has been supported by amazing employment creation. And now wages are going up again. The business sector has ample financing and ample cash. So if you were simply to look at the U.S. economy on a standalone basis, you could see 25 to 3% growths going on and on. It would help enormously if Congress got its act together and in my view implemented an infrastructure program that modernizes our infrastructure and makes it more digital friendly. So you want to add a bit more gas in the growth engine. Where the issues come up with the US economy is what do you do with three factors? The rest of the world is weakening. Europe is really slowing and is gonna get near and the what's called stall speed, Mm. where the risk of bad things happening goes up. China is having enormous difficulty revamping its economy for the new realities that it is much larger and cannot depend on the outside world as the engine. So the first uncertainty has to do with the global economy. The second uncertainty has to do with central banks. They're in transition. We've never done this transition before it's clear to me that one systemically important central bank can handle it, but can three systemically important central banks do it? I don't know. And the third uncertainty is the years of central bank support have decoupled asset prices from fundamentals. And there's a question mark as to whether fundamentals can improve fast enough to validate asset prices or whether asset prices come down. The reason why the fourth quarter of this year was so scary for people is because nothing much happened on fundamentals. But the minute the Fed came across as being too hawkish, next thing you found is asset values plummeting, and people were very worried that that will pull down the economy.
0: Yeah, I want to follow up on that. So two of your three worries are central bank related, and that's not surprising to me because I'm somewhat perplexed by Jay Powell and the Fed and what they've been
1: doing. Are you? I don't know if I would use the word perplexed. I I have sympathy for them because they are navigating an inherent contradiction. If they look at the domestic signals, which, by the way, they are mandated to do, and if they were to focus just on their two objectives, then it's green light for Titan policy. If they look at the rest of the world, and if they look at the risk of destabilizing market, is flashing either yellow or red. So you have one green light here, and one either flashing yellow or flashing red here. And they are somehow, so what they've done is they swung too much in favor of one, and now they've swung back too much in favor of the other. And somehow, they gotta understand not to be pulled like this. Because if they continue like this, they'll become a source of instability. Which
0: we maybe saw in December, in oh, January, yeah. Right?
1: Yeah. And you saw it again, by the way, in January, February. Right. If you look at what's happened to markets, basically, we're up since the lows of December 24th. We're up around 20%. So what, what should the Fed do then? So the Fed should be, in my view, less short-term data dependent, right? The data dependency makes sense when you don't know where the transition is. But at some point, you've got to take a longer term view, and you've got a position for that longer term view, right? and don't get swung around by short term indicators, because at the end of the day, you risk becoming a co-opted by the markets, which no one wants central banks to be co-opted by markets, and two, you risk being a source of instability.
0: So uh, switching gears a little bit, I want to ask you about some of the political trends we're seeing in the United States, say, with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, and her proposals to tax the super wealthy, complaining about uh, the billionaires. Um, do you think that she has a point?
1: So I think she has a point in saying that we've got to do something about the trifecta of inequality. What's the trifecta? So the trifecta of inequality is not just an inequality of income and wealth. This country can actually tolerate an inequality of income and wealth. Um, and there's the view that actually this is a good thing, you incentivize. You know, If you create Facebook in your dorm, of course you should be a billionaire. But when it becomes a trifecta Andy, of income, wealth and opportunity, that's a real problem. And what we've seen happen since the global financial crisis is that it has become a trifecta. And therefore, we have to think more seriously, not just about growth, but about what I call inclusive growth. Growth that really brings in more segments of society. Otherwise, we're going to risk a major alienation and marginalization of part of our country, which is a real problem. And how would we do that, Mohammed? So first of all, we have to focus more on growth. Okay, which, which means position for longer-term issues. And I talked to you about infrastructure. That's really important. We need to spend a lot more time thinking about how do we operate an economy when technology is changing, not just what we do, but how we do it. And you know, Andy, that when you change how, people become very nervous. They become very insecure. So we've we got to have frameworks for that. Secondly, some redistribution is warranted. We've gone too far in terms of the inequality. Now there's ways to do it that don't distort the economy. What Uh, ways? For example, the way we tax um, inheritance in the States, the amount of exemptions we provide people, we still have a distorted tax system. So you can do a lot with the tax system to clean it up, which you'll find is pro-growth and pro-redistribution. And the burden on the it would not be that much. Okay. It simply would be fixing stuff that, over the years, has become embedded in the system. Would that include taxing carried interest, perhaps, as so well? That's a perfect example. It's very hard to justify the treatment of carried interest. It's it is. Very, it's, I mean, in my view, it's impossible. Yeah. Right? And yet, it has persisted year after year, when most people agree that we need to fix it. They must be pretty good lobbyists, those people, <laughs> Indeed. I think.
0: Indeed. Um, what, are, what is your advice for investors in the bond market and the stock market for the balance of the year, Mohammed?
1: So it's a little bit different, mm-hmm. okay? Um, in the bond market, I would tell them never forget that we're coming out of a period of distorted pricing. A 10-year U.S. doesn't belong on the 3%, given our economic reality. The reason why a 10 year U.S. is under 3% is because a 10 year German bond is under 20 basis points. So already, if you were to plot the difference between U.S. yields and German yields, we are near historical highs. The historical highs were a few months ago at 270. We're now at around 260. So the only reason we're here is because of what's happening in Europe. So understand that, that when you're buying out the curve, you're taking a European view, not a U.S. view. You're much safer further in the curve, right, where there is value and there's a lot less risk. So on the bond side, I would say, be careful. Understand that this bond market is not your everyday bond market. This is a distorted bond market. It has a lot to do with what the ECB is doing with Europe, et cetera. On stocks, I would say, become more selective. Understand that, that these big swings Are going to continue and that just like we've been up 20 percent we could be down 20 percent in three to six months time if the Fed stumbles in its communication again so you have to be a little bit tactical in addition to being long term and I always get the pushback you want us to day trade I said no I don't want you to day trade I just want you to understand that this is a market that's really impacted by what the Fed says it sounds like we uh your thinking
0: is we haven't yet paid the price for or adjusted from a period of incredible easy money from the fed
1: correct we easy money did two things it pushed everybody to take more risk and secondly it changed our mindset we believed that central banks were our bffs our best friends forever and once again it's proven to be the case market had a bit of a t- temper t- tantrum yeah. in the last quarter. And guess what? The Fed changed course completely. But at some point, they can't be our BFFs. Correct. And people have to realize that this is actually going to do that. I think, I think if you took the central bankers and they were completely honest, they would say, you know what? We understand that we influence the market. We don't like the extent to which markets have held us hostage. We just don't know how to get out of this. And I think what you saw in the Fed in the middle of last year was an attempt to get out of this. But they underestimated the reaction of the markets. That all sounds a little scary to
0: me, quite honestly.
1: Yeah, I, I think people have to understand that markets have ways of embracing you. And you know, they don't let go, because markets ultimately can disrupt the real economy. If markets couldn't disrupt the real economy, no one would care. But markets can disrupt the real economy.
0: Is this what you mean by that phrase
1: that you've coined new normal? So no, the new, no, the new normal view, which, which came out of work done at PIMCO with my colleagues during and right after the financial crisis was the realization that what was impacting the advanced economy wasn't a cyclical shock. It was a structural shock mm-hmm. in the sense that it wasn't a rubber band. That when you stretch it and then it won't go back so we came out saying be careful when you recover from the immediate financial disruption growth is not going to pick up back up it's not going to be a v it's going to look much more like an l the immediate reaction was that's quote idiotic that was what was said to me by someone i respect tremendously in washington that's idiotic why because our mindset has always been that It's the developing countries that live in structural space. The advanced countries live in cyclical space. So of course we're going to bounce back. We weren't going to because before the crisis, we over invested in finance, and we under invested in other things that make the economy grow on a sustainable basis. So we had a tremendous catch up to do, and unfortunately we didn't do it. Mohammed, Donald Trump is on the phone and wants to
0: talk to you, and he wants to ask you for advice about handling the economy, what would
1: you tell him? I would say your deregulation and your tax policy has given this economy significant momentum. You need now to work with Congress and convince them to add a third element in your program, which is an infrastructure program, which can mostly pay for itself. And I know that when people say that, they say that's really, no, take advantage of how low interest rates are, take advantage of all these private public partnerships that are underexploited and do that because we need to put more gas in the growth engines. And if we do that, we can navigate well the slowing in the rest of the economy and, and the Fed will normalize without a high risk of an accident.
0: A lot of people know you as an economist, but there are other sides to Mohamed I remember you said that you had to improve your work-life balance from your daughter. And you're also a football fan, right? I am. Talk
1: about those two things. So th- there was a point where my daughter felt the need to, sh- to, to confront me with a list of 22 things I had missed during her school year. And that made me realize that I had gotten the balance wrong. And then, to add to my dismay, she brought out the yearbook from school, and she opened on the page of her class, and there was one event that I actually turned up to. And she said, look, look at the background. And there I was sitting on a tiny stool looking at my Blackberry. Of course, right. And she said, Dad, even when you're here, you're not here. How old was she? She was 10 years old. And that, for me, was like a light bulb. And we, since then, um, I, I went for what's called the portfolio approach, where you do many different things, but you regain flexibility. And it has been the most wonderful thing that I've done. And I, I really thank her and I do repeatedly for having you know, the foresight of presenting me with evidence that was so compelling at the time. And how many years ago was that? That was five years ago. Great. And because she wants to be an actor on Broadway, mm-hmm. she opted for a boarding school um, so now it's me who goes to her, right. uh, you know, every every month. Um, and, but I, if I hadn't had those wonderful four years, I don't know what I would have done. And football? What's your team? So unfortunately, my team is the New York Jets. You have to understand that I was a ten-year-old in New York when the Mets won the World Series. The Jets won the Super Bowl. And I was sucked in, and I, and one of my tendencies to be quite loyal, so I'm loyal to them, even though it's been nothing but disappointment for, for those two teams. And every season, Andy, my hopes go up, we win one or two games, and then the predictable letdown happens, and and I, it's 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 quite an emotional roller coaster for me. And finally, Mohammed, this show is called the
0: Influencers. How would you like to use your influence going forward?
1: So I think the most important thing for someone like me is to to try to convey to, to people the importance of operating in intersections. So I operate in the intersection of economics, policy, markets. It's very easy to operate in one of these three. It's a little bit harder to operate in both. But when you operate in three, you get accused of not operating in any. And yet the real world happens in the middle of these. So if you're in the Fed, for example, it's not enough to understand what, how the policy impacts the world and what economics, you better understand markets. If you're in markets, you better understand policy and economics. And if you're in economics, you're not going to predict, for example, the global financial crisis if you don't understand what markets are doing. So. I, where I try to influence people is get out of your comfort zone, don't be hostage to just one or two, but look at the intersection, because that's where the world actually operates.
0: All right, Mohammed el Arian, thank you so much for coming by. Thank you. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter, at Yahoo Finance and at Sirwork.